It's so exciting that so many people want to bring biomechanics into the wild, but it seems really tough to get high-quality measurements outside of the lab, such as in participants' homes. Yes, but hearing about the Neutrigno Light portable EMG system from our sponsor, Delsys, definitely made me feel confident about going into someone's home and knowing that even in challenging environments, the sensors can still reliably transmit great quality data at up to 4,000 hertz. Makes biomechanics in the wild seem reachable. That's so awesome. It's even been used to collect EMG data of mountaineers right in the actual mountains. Whoa. Well, if you'd like a chance to win a brand new Trigno light system with two EMG sensors and do your own biomechanics in the wild, head over to delsis.com slash boom and enter the prize draw. Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. My name is Melissa Boswell. And I'm Hannah O'Day, and we're PhD students at Stanford University. This podcast is brought to you by the International Society of Biomechanics. It's, it's time, time for Boom. Boom. Welcome to Boom. We have Biomechanics on our minds. Boom. 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 Welcome to another episode of your favorite podcast. Boom, 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 boom. <laughs> Biomechanics on our minds. I'm Hannah. And I'm Melissa. And today we talk to Dr. Ryan McGinnis, who's an associate professor and assistant director in the Department of Electrical and Biomedical Engineering at the University of Vermont. He leads the M-Sense Research Group, which takes the tools we make in biomechanics and empowers people out in the real world. I love that description that he used for his research and work. Yeah, it's been really fun to have Ryan here with us in person as he's on sabbatical here, as he talk about. And I think from the moment I saw his initial <laughs> presentation in lab meeting, I was like, yeah. okay, we have to have him on Boom because he's fantastic. His projects are so applied and impactful. And it's just overall just like a really inspiring, as a, he's really inspiring as a researcher and also just as an awesome human being. Mm-hmm. So um, really it was really lucky. fun, full of lots of laughs, which we love. Yeah, so. yeah. So we're really excited to share that with you. And before we get into that episode, that interview, we wanted to ask that if you enjoy Boom, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us and share it with someone who you think would enjoy it too. Yeah. Ryan said he's a real big Boom fan, so just be like him and share it with <laughs> everyone that you love. <laughs> exactly. Bit of Boom. Okay, we're live, so Woo-hoo! everyone act professional. <laughs> Too late. <laughs> Not exactly my approach, John. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. No, we're so happy to have you here, Ryan. As an intro to our guest today, we're talking with Dr. Ryan McGinnis. Ryan's an associate professor and assistant director in the Department of Electrical and Biomedical Engineering at the University of Vermont. And you lead the MSENS research group, which empowers patients with digital health technologies, develops digital biomarkers and therapeutics for improving human health and performance. And I think you put it well before we started the interview and in that you like to take a lot of the tools we learn in biomechanics and then apply them to use them in other applications. And so we're really excited to learn more about that today. Thank you all so much for having me. I just want to start off by saying that I'm a massive boom <laughs> So uh, I feel very honored to be here today. Yeah, no, the honor is ours, really. It's yeah. awesome that we get to do this in person, too, because Ryan's here on sabbatical. So it's like a really cool opportunity to learn more about you as you are joined our research lab. And it's been really awesome to have you here. It's been wonderful to be here. Yeah, huge thanks to Scott for supporting my results. 
Yeah. <laughs> Shout out to Scott. <laughs> well, yeah, we're so excited. We've been following you and your work. And but what we haven't been following is we don't know your beginnings. So <laughs> we'd love to hear about when you first knew you wanted to be a biomechanist and how that journey started. Yeah, that's a great question. So my journey started a way that I think a lot of biomechanists' journey started with a sort of personal interest. I was an athlete growing up, particularly a golfer, uh, and I was never really that good at playing golf. Uh, <laughs> but I was really interested in it. And when I was in in undergrad at, at Lafayette College, I had this great dynamics professor named Steve Nesbitt. And he had this like ongoing research project. Lafayette's a super small school. It's, uh, it's like 1,500, 2,000 students, all undergrad engineering and, and really a focus on liberal arts. And he had this undergrad research project that was focused on analyzing golf swings. And so I was introduced to optical motion capture, working with optical motion capture data in the context of studying my own golf swing. Yeah, so you were the golf I was. I was the subject. <laughs> yeah, yep, yeah. yeah. And that really sort of, like, I got the research bug, right? Like, trying to understand, you know, certainly not at the level that, that you all do it here, but, like, as an undergraduate student, like, understand what does, you know, biomechanical modeling look like? How do you change some parameters in a model of a golf swing to what happens within the golf swing? And using that to think about, like, sort of changes to my own golf game and how I may wow. improve the way that I play golf. And I, like it like turns out that as an undergraduate student, I was wrong for all of those things. <laughs> My golf game only got worse. Didn't get worse. Oh, no. uh, but that's like that's okay. But it, I definitely caught the research bug. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Grad school, and um, you know, I think that type of like really applied project is still the thing that sort of gets me excited about research. Is sort of solving this unknown question for people. Yeah, we definitely see that in your work too. Although I, I feel like. Although the work then didn't necessarily improve the application that you're working at, we definitely see that now in your work, which is awesome. Hopefully, yeah, a little bit more. <laughs> it's amazing that you still had the bug even after it wasn't working. Like, I think sometimes I like tend to give up when it's like not working for me. I'm like, ah, this is all dumb, you know. But yeah, yeah. But it's, a it's a process, which I guess is it's what you process. have to love yeah, as exactly. a right as a researcher. Yeah, yeah, totally. yeah, exactly. And could you share a little bit more about what you're working on now, what you're really excited yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So maybe a quick sort of aside on, on where I went from there. So I started yeah. off, I went, went to grad school in Michigan with uh, my advisor was Noel Perkins, who was this amazing mentor, mm -hmm. and did started off doing more sports research, like embedding inertial measurement units in baseballs and studying how people pitch baseballs and swung baseball oh, bats. But sort of doing that, you know, you sort of see how these technologies can be used to measure the way that elite athletes are doing things. Mm -hmm. But it's just sort of like, it seems like they could have been used for so much more. Um, and so we sort of got more and more into the medical side of studying human performance initially in the context of warfighters, but then in my latest work, studying people that have balance mobility problems, and now mm -hmm. into folks that have, you know, sort of mental health challenges that they're we're trying to help them through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. I like what... I think was the inspiration for you to kind of look at the broader applications and beyond sort of the sports applications that, that you were seeing. Yeah. You know, I think it's like, you know, so much, so much of what motivates me is the impact that we can have with the work that we do. Mm -hmm. Right. And so mm -hmm. taking a look at what is impacting society the most, right. And I think time and time again, we see, especially recently around mental health problems being a huge, mm -hmm. sort of a huge area where research can make a difference. And it just felt like the right, like the right way to invest my time was was in trying to develop technologies that can sort of, you know, help folks that are struggling with the whole problems. Mm -hmm. How do you find that you measure sort of that level of impact and like weigh that with sort of maybe a personal connection? Like you talked about a personal motivation yeah, to, yeah, to yeah. getting into biomechanics, yeah. and how do you sort of weigh those things in your, yeah, current research? 
Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think like, so the goal of the root project, we have this like saying in our lab, the goal of the root project we started is to ultimately translate the, the project from the lab out into the market where it can actually help people. And so, you know, I think, I think we look at it in terms of how many people can we help is sort of a, the way that we sort of think about the impact. But at the same time, I think it's also about the level of impact that you can have, right? Because it's like something, so some of the projects we work on, right? Like we have an app for treating panic attacks. Panic attacks are this incredible, this like incredibly debilitating problem mm-hmm. that impacts like a really large percentage of the population, mm-hmm. right? And, like, and, it, and it has really received very little scientific study. Um, and there aren't good interventions that exist to help people prevent their panic attacks or, or mm-hmm. help to manage them. So we saw this like unmet clinical need yeah. um, that that really would be impactful for a lot of people. And we tried to develop a tool, that can, and we're not—I don't think we're there yet—but it helped. We still, we're starting to develop a tool that can be helpful for those. Well, you develop you develop Panic Mechanic, which is an app to help give people some tool when they have when they're having a panic attack, right? Yep. And yep. it gives them some type of biofeedback, which maybe you can share more about. But it's interesting too because I think panic attacks can happen to anyone like you know it's not just like a specific population of people too and i'm also as you were talking about how you like to consider you know the maximum impact you can have but i think a lot of times in research we start with a very niche population and i'm curious what it's been like to design something that could be used for such a, a range of people too yeah, yeah, it's really hard. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right? hard for everyone. <laughs> yeah. And I think, well, you know, I think what we're finding is that we're, you know, we're not there yet, right? But I yeah. think it's really important to learn from from as many of those people as you can. And so I think we we learned that lesson over and over again. But it's a sort of user centered design process and getting feedback to help change how your technology is working to ultimately, you know, meet the need of, of as many people as you can. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not, it's not an easy thing. Like, I think it's a constantly evolving process. Yeah. Um, like one of the examples is with Panic Mechanic, we created this tool that provides biofeedback during panic attacks, which is great, except that when you're having your panic attack, you have to then like think to pull out your phone from your pocket and like open right. this app and like subject yourself to this biofeedback, which is like fundamentally an exposure therapy. So it like, doesn't necessarily feel good in the moment. And people report that it's helpful, but it's not something that people necessarily want to sign up for all the time. Yeah. Um, and so some of the work that we're doing now is trying to better understand, can we predict when people may be likely to have a panic attack? And we think that like, A, that can help, you know, inform, like help sort of warn people that they're coming. So maybe they can prepare themselves and, and like decide to open that app instead of avoiding mm-hmm. opening the app. But also can like help them understand maybe some things that are happening in their lives that, that they can sort of intervene themselves on, right? Mm-hmm. To help prevent their, their experience. Yeah. And what were some of the things that you found to be predictive of that? And if you're going to then share with someone that that they may have a panic attack, what do you think are the sort of like tangible things that they could change based on your research? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a really good question. So we've done a little bit of work here. And this, this paper that I'm, I'm going to mention is still under review. So it's not like it's, it's a treatment now. It's not, not, um, not actually published yet, but it's looking at mood as a potential predictor. Um, so we ask people every day to rate their mood on a scale from one to five. Um, and people that had specifically or particularly low reported a self-reported low mood for a given day, they were much more likely to have a panic attack the next day. Um, and then interestingly, we looked at this really cool output from this really cool tool called the Hedonometer, which uh, was developed by some colleagues at the University of Vermont. That takes a random sampling of 10,000 tweets every day and distills it down into like a measure of happiness. 
which is super cool. And you can see like, you know, yeah. this time series of uh, happiness of, you know, essentially of the world, like the English speaking world. Wow. Um, and so like you see spikes at Christmas, you see, you know, at bad world events, you see significant declines in happiness. Yeah. And we found that mood of your community. So like specific to like your state, the mood of your community also predicts okay. your life. And it's, and it's different than your self-reported mood. So it's both this like external factor and mm-hmm. an internal factor that are independent and predict your bit of experience of panic attack the next day. So this is a really cool, it's a really cool result. We're still trying to figure out what you do with it. Right, right, <laughs> but, yeah. but it does sort of imply like maybe some happiness-based intervention may reduce your likelihood of having a panic attack, which is a much different approach than like a stress reduction type intervention. Right. Where you're like trying to increase happiness, right, right. instead of trying to reduce stress. And that's a, I think a much different approach than people have in the past with things like panic. And yeah, it's crazy that something so external, like the mood of your state <laughs> is like affecting you so much. And maybe that feels like something I might not be, you know, cognizant of as, yeah, like maybe yeah. I'm cognizant of my own mood, but less of the sort of external yeah. sphere yeah, exactly. or how it's affecting me. But then we're all sort of taking that in passively right. all the time. Exactly. Um, so it is like this really interesting thing to think about. But tying it back to biomechanics, like yeah, these, are, these are all say, tools so that then, I learned as a biomechanist. Right? Right? Yeah, so, yeah. Could you talk more about that? <laughs> like, I guess this link in, in some of the tools that you found have been most translatable yeah. or applied in these other settings that seem sort of far from biomechanics. Yeah, I mean, like, I think as biomechanists, we all are sort of like signal processing engineers to mm-hmm. a certain extent, right? Like, we're all like, like I, I'm not going to kind of be a statistics expert, but we're all like kind of statistics experts mm-hmm. a little bit. Mm-hmm. And those types of tools are the same ones you use to analyze these types of data, right? Like fundamentally, the data we're getting from mood is like a mood time series over, you know, like a series of moves over across a study period. And, you know, you're doing statistics on those, those time series data. Yeah. Uh, do you relate that mood to anything physiological, like you, sort of any objective markers? Yeah, so it's a great question. We've looked at um, data from the Apple Watch. And we're seeing that resting heart rates also may be predictive of next day panic attack and ambient noise levels may be predictive as well. Well, resting heart rate. So, yeah, I see. If your resting heart rate is elevated, yep. sort of yeah. your baseline state. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. What are your thoughts, I think, on... I'm curious. I've also been interested in these new tools to measure biomechanics out in the wild. And have any of your projects that you've been working on been combining biomechanical signals with these other measures that, that you have? Or, um, yeah, what are your thoughts on how biomechanics might also play as a role as a predictor in these um, panic attacks or other applications? Yeah, yeah. So I, I love the use of biomechanics in the wild. Obviously, a huge component of this. We, we have a couple of projects that uh, focus specifically on that and, like, really how to make sense of the vast amounts of data you get when you deploy right. variables in the world. And so we have this platform that we built called the Digital Biomarker Discovery Platform, and we use it um, – right now we're using it in the context of trying to understand when people are at high risk for falling, particularly mm-hmm. those that have neurological disorders with balanced mobility impairment. You know, can we use that to identify potential predictors that tell people when they're at high risk for a fall uh, so that you can then intervene before the fall happens? Yeah. So that's one way we're doing it. And that's sort of, I think, more of like a traditional sort of approach to using biomechanics data. I think people have looked at biomechanics in the context of falls for a long time and predicted mm-hmm. markers of that. Another way that's a little bit less traditional is a project that we're calling the KIDS study. And it's funded by NSF and NIH. And it's uh, trying to build a point of care diagnostic for detecting kids that have underlying mental health conditions. Mm-hmm. So uh, kids mm-hmm. under eight are good reporters of their own mental health, as you might imagine. Like, right. I'm not even sure adults are, but yeah, that's kids what I was definitely say. are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and so the sort of diagnostic process for 
you know, diagnosing a kid that young with anxiety or depression is you ask their parents about it mm. um, and sort of how you ask their parents how their kids feel. And, and parents aren't really good reporters either, <laughs> right? Yeah. It turns out. And so there's this like sort of unmet, again, like an unmet clinical need of um, sort of an objective way to assess kids with um, underlying mental health conditions to see if they may need to get directed to, to therapy when it can actually make a real difference mm. in their development. Mm. And so we're using wearables in the context of the study and these like short tasks um, that are called mood induction tasks. They're designed to press the kid for some specific behavioral response. Mm. Um, and we measure what that response is using this wearables data, um, both their biomechanical response, like how they're moving, but then mm-hmm. also their physiological response through their heart rate and their heart rate variability and their galvanic skin response and all, and all kinds of cool stuff. Mm-hmm. Could you give an example of one of those tasks? Like, Yeah, what? yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can. I promise that this task is not hurt like harming the game. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it's like I get when you get an intro. Like that. <laughs> so there's sort of I think the most interesting one, especially when it comes to movement, is this task called we're calling it now the approach task. It used to be called the snake task. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is that you're you know trying to press the kid for this like sort of fear response. Um, and so you bring them into you have this experimenter they just met. Bring them into a dimly lit room. Um, and at the back of the room, there's this like terrarium that's covered with a blanket and inside is a rubber snake. The kid doesn't know that. And so you lead them into this dimly lit room. You're like, oh, come here. Like, don't just be quiet. Don't wake, don't wake it up. And then they get to the end of the room and the, you pull the snake out and you sort of show it to the kid. And they either really like it because they like snakes or they run out of the room and so yeah. all kinds of different responses. Wow. And so in the, the sort of preliminary work that we did, we found that how kids walk into that room and sort of approach this unknown okay. stimulus is indicative of if they have an underlying mental health condition or not. And like with pretty good accuracy, we trained machine learning models and on held out data, you were able to detect with 80% accuracy if the kid had um, anxiety and depression or not. And that's about the same level, give or take, as, as sort of clinical diagnosis. And it's from an IMU somewhere on their... Yeah, from, a, from an IMU on the back of their... On the back, on the back, the back. like their lower back, actually, realm. Wow. Like belt. Yeah, so it's like this really cool result. And we're replicating it now, and it seems like it's working. And it turns out it's only that approach period. And we found that the kids that had anxiety and depression turned further away from this potential threat than the kids who didn't. Um, turned so further away, so like physically not facing it yeah, as like, much. Yeah, like, like physically avoiding the potential threat. So that's the signal that you're picking up from the IMU that seems to be the most predictive yeah. of okay, yeah. as wow. they're approaching. And that's it. in the approach? Yeah, or that's in, and after in or? the lead up to it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and that huh. afterwards we found like kids, kids, regardless of their mental health status, respond to the snake in all kinds of different Likely because some kids really like snakes, right? Like <laughs> yeah. some kids wow. Um, and so, like, it's more that lead up to it that that matters, and, wow. um, and specifically, like how the kid is moving, like their biomechanics during that lead up period. That's so interesting. It's so interesting to hear that because I think we've heard examples with like an older, or I've heard examples in older adults where maybe they walk slower, and that's an in, in like walking speed is an indication of sort of their cognitive state. But like to have yeah, this sort of behavior be an indicator of yeah, some kind of mental health state is also just fascinating Mm -hmm. yeah and it's really i think then looking forward it's exciting to see that you're also looking at how then can you intervene and that's something that i think is challenging in research um and it's exciting that you're starting to get there and you're you've been doing pilot tests for example with panic mechanic and i'm curious what that experience has been like for you it seems like that's something that's been important from you from from the beginning and so is it something that you kind of consider at the start of it and then design your research in a way that you feel like will make it easier to translate 
or does the research tend to lead to translation? Because I think a lot of times, sometimes we start with a really interesting question and, and have an awesome research study. And then this part of translation is kind of at the end, like, okay, could we do something that it's out into the world or like, does that make sense now? And I'm curious from your experience, what that's looked like. Yeah, it's a great question. I think we, we do it a little bit differently than other people do. Like I think, so our group is really focused on trying to translate from the beginning. So mm-hmm. like we say, you know, we, we look at this, we find a new problem we want to investigate. Some it's typically someone that clinical need, um, and we're like, okay, what are the scientific steps we need to do to build something that ultimately can address that problem? Mm-hmm. And so sort of working back then from that end goal, like here are the studies we would have to do. Here's like what's known and what's not known in, in the science that we would have to mm-hmm. you know investigate, mm-hmm. but ultimately all serving that goal of trying to get something out to the world. And I think that like, I think that is like fundamentally maybe a, a little bit different than the way other people approach mm-hmm. um, like a research, building a research program and investigating certain research topics. Yeah. Can you talk about what, when you're saying, okay, then we have to go back and do these research studies in general, what are the outcomes from those research studies that you're seeking to get that would then like lead into developing something? You're saying it's typically clinical needs, but sometimes it seems like the answers from research questions and the answers that a clinician wants to know and when you want to translate something, is it more, how do you kind of juggle those things? Do you have to really focus more on the, the clinical side of it in order to get a backing from clinicians to get out of the world? Or can you bring in new ideas from your research and science? Yeah. So I think it's, I think it's very much a, a sort of sequential process, right? Like I think a lot mm-hmm. of the things that we're, that we're building now are like, you know, we like, let's take it, let's say in the context of, of this fall risk intervention that we're developing, right? Mm-hmm. We know that we wanted some way to help people, effectively deploy the skills they learn in PT mm-hmm. that help to prevent falls, things like the way they transition out of chairs mm-hmm. or, the, or the way mm-hmm. that they walk to sort of reduce their risk of falling. We know we needed some way to help people remember to do that effectively, mm-hmm. um, sort of giving them prompts to do that during their daily life. Mm-hmm. And so then if we think back, if we think from starting from where we are, and when we started this project, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of biomechanics in the wild happening, right? It was like more biomechanics with wearables and labs. Mm-hmm. What are the sort of research contributions that we need to make to have to build the technology out to even be able to address the clinical question? Mm-hmm. And then what are the clinical studies we need to do to like provide right. the evidence that the, the you know clinicians would find compelling to then try to deploy this clinic? And I think we're probably we're like halfway-ish there now. I don't we haven't done those clinical studies yet. That's the next grant. But mm-hmm. we built this system for you know care, classifying different types of activities that happen at home, mm-hmm. decomposing those activities into sort of performance characteristics so like you know characteristics to describe how you transition out of a chair right mm-hmm. or characteristics to describe how you walk or how you're standing and then machine learning models that relate those characteristics to your fall status or your fall risk mm-hmm. and we're just sort of there now and i think now the next step is you know if we have this system that provides those that information to patients that have balance ability problems what is the impact um, you know do they change are they able to change their behavior if they do, does it actually reduce their likelihood of falling? Mm-hmm. Those are really, I think, really exciting, exciting studies to do. Yeah. I'm curious, you talked earlier about the importance of user-centered design, and that's yeah. clear yeah. in a lot of your work. <laughs> like, what at what point do you bring users in to get their feedback? Yeah, yeah like, kind yeah. of in that sequential process. So we do it, we actually get user feedback with every study visit we do. Oh, wow. Um, yes, yeah, so like, we, we have this sort of, like, semi-structured interview we do, and 
collect feedback from people every time they put on a device. And I think we've learned a lot about uh, commercial yeah. systems because of it, right? So yeah. like we use the biostamp sensors a lot in our a lot in our lab. And there's you know challenges for for a small like a smaller percentage, but a, a, a meaningful percentage of our participants with those adhesive type stickers that they're wearing on their body for long periods of time. Mm-hmm. That's motivated some of our some of our work around trying to reduce the amount of data you actually collect so that you right. don't need to have people wearing devices for as long, mm-hmm. um, or for or from as many places on your body. But yeah, I think it's really important to try to get that feedback whenever you can. And what kinds of questions do you ask to get that feedback? Yeah, like questions like you know, how does it feel to wear this device? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like if you yeah, were, yeah. like, would you do this if your healthcare provider that provider asked you to do mm-hmm. it? Right. Or if we weren't paying you, would you wear this device? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like it's, um, I think just trying to start a dialogue with them. So right. Like, like the, you know, the people that are volunteering for research are really excited about helping. Right. And they'll, they'll, give, they'll let you know what, what's working for them and what's not. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious, just like talking about like our, our earlier point of like your design panning mechanic for everyone, right? Yeah. And then when you have all <laughs> these different users in, and you're getting this feedback, what is the variability like among people? Is Or are there yeah. like, yeah. really significant trends or is everyone sort of everyone's different <laughs> i think so i think like you know everyone is really different yeah um and i think that it is important to sort of collect a large enough sample of responses where you can distill that down into trends one area where i think um that was like particular particularly salient to me like i think in the context of pandemic it makes sense that people are all going to experience this like to me it makes sense that people are all going to experience this really challenging panic attack differently and like they may want different things during that to help help and i think right you know we don't necessarily know what the answer is yet one of the areas that we've been doing a lot of like customer discovery type interviews in is in physical therapists and people that are providing support to uh, folks recovering from orthopedic surgeries mm. and just the the sheer like why the wide variety of different approaches to providing care post-optimum surgery that exists across the country is remarkable to me. And like wow. the different types of orthopedic um, like rehabilitation protocols that exist and like how often people are in contact with their PT and what is actually done. Yeah. It's like, you sort of think that it's a standardized process and it's like really not. Yeah. And when you think about designing a, like a technology to then sell into that system, right? right? It's like, like, what do you design? Yeah. Like, it's, it's like, yeah. how do you, it's like very, it's very hard to think about like, what is, how do you meet customer need um, right. from a PT or from a patient? And then, mm-hmm. um, when everybody's experience is different. Yeah. It's like, exactly. Yeah. And it's so much more than just to those personal decisions, but also bigger, yeah. <laughs> like insurance and all of these other entities that kind of play in, into that as well. So it ends up being quite a complicated yeah. system to try to, to try to break into. And in addition to what you're saying, like these personal um, like there might be different prescriptions among different physical therapists, but then also whether or not people adhere to them. Like it's just hard to, um, there's definitely not going to be a one certain prescription yeah. Yeah. Um, for anyone. Do you feel like it's possible to make technology more flexible for these different needs? Or do you think there kind of needs to be different solutions for you know, different situations that you might see? Yeah, I feel like there's definitely, I think you definitely can make flexible technology. Right, mm-hmm. like technology that can address all these needs, but I think there's like really a lack of knowledge on mm-hmm. what is out there, right, and what mm-hmm. protocols are out there, mm-hmm. right. And so I think first understanding the scale of that problem, right, mm-hmm. like what are all the all, like, right. what are, what are the groups of potential um, uh, rehab protocols that exist, and like once you understand that, then you can start to design a technology that addresses right. those. But mm-hmm. um, as far as we can tell, there's not a there's not a good source of information for that right now, right? Yeah. 
do you, in all of your data gathering in that space, uh, do you have plans for how to disseminate <laughs> that or share that with, like... No, not, we don't okay. yet. <laughs> yeah, we don't yet. It's, like, very much a work in progress. Yeah, I think, I think like, it's, it's this natural question of when you do biomechanics in the wild, like, the the community that that likely can benefit the most is patients who are going through some sort of rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and therefore the rehabilitation providers are, are likely your partners in mm-hmm. deploying that technology, but trying mm-hmm. to understand like how these tools can ultimately help them and help the patients is right. like, it's a really, it's a, it's a fun problem to think about. Cause I think like really there's, we can have a big impact there, mm-hmm. but it like definitely is not easy. <laughs> there's not like a clear yeah. solution. Yeah. yeah exactly. um, it's cool. I think it's like, I think we're, I think we're getting there. Yeah. yeah. That's a good point of like, then can you synthesize what you're finding and sort of like disseminate for other people who are interested in that area. But it's like, there's this, I don't know, there's kind of like this nuance to like what you're learning from people that is just really hard to then, synthesize in a scientific paper and publish yeah, it too. Yeah, like I, yeah. I feel like I've, I've read, for example, when I was like trying to under, better understand the experiences with people with knee osteoarthritis and why they might not be as active as people without knee osteoarthritis. And there's a lot of papers that do qualitative analyses on this, but then actually going and talking to patients is just, is different than reading um, what, someone else's conversations were with patients. And I think it just gives a different perspective and, and motivation to your work that is yeah, hard to do from um, kind of outside of really personally um, having those talks. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. I, um, I'd say like one of the most impactful experiences I've had in the last couple of years is doing this um, I-Core course, Innovation Core course, which mm. like completely shifted my how to do research like this and it's not like it's not meant for that it's like a it's like a technology commercialization course that's put on by nsf mm-hmm. um, and it's it's like super cool but like one of the things that you do during the course is you have to conduct 100 customer discovery interviews so you have to interview 100 people who are in the sort of space of your technology and ultimately people that you would be sort of selling your technology to mm-hmm. and like you know i i think in the context of building a business it's super important to do that to understand yeah. what your customer are customer who your customer is and what their needs are and sort of what they're willing to pay for a technology but in the context of doing research like we do, where you are building technologies or using technologies in humans, like, yeah. it's also really important to understand what their needs are. Yeah. And to your point, like you don't really get it unless you go and talk to them. There's, right. It's really hard to replicate that, yeah. that, that sort of learning that happens as a result. Right. Yeah, I guess back to my earlier question, I'm kind of glad that you maybe don't have a plan to disseminate this in a certain way because I think it also robs people of the opportunity to do this. And I think it is so important. Yeah, it's sort of, we talk about this a lot on the podcast about like sort of the human side of science and how important that is um, to remember and to integrate into all work. So I think, yeah, you're definitely doing a good job. But, um, <laughs> Thank you. Shifting to another human in your life. We're really excited to learn a little bit more about one of your main collaborators, who is also mm. your partner, mm-hmm. yep. um, Ellen McGinnis. Um, she's an assistant professor of psychiatry at yes, UVM. Yeah. And yeah, so it's amazing that you we've talked about Panic Mechanic and that project and you collaborate on that. Um, could you just share what that experience is like? What, what have you learned from your collaboration with your wife and yeah. maybe yeah. things that you might not have learned 
from other collaborators. Yeah, because I could imagine you know, <laughs> other collaborators and how you might not be as uh, yeah. straightforward yeah, or like exactly. really honest with your yeah. uh, collaborative uh, right. skills or <laughs> interactions. <laughs> oh, that's such a good question. <laughs> um, yeah, so... We're going to send this to her after. By far my best collaborator. By far my best collaborator. Okay, good way to start. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think it's been like an incredibly exciting opportunity to sort of work on these types of technologies together yeah. all of the research questions like i'm sure you all find this too right like your partner ends up shaping so much of your research interest just because like you end up talking to them so much about what you do mm-hmm. yeah. and they end up like oftentimes having insightful insight because they're sort of outside of it mm-hmm. and so you know i think like a lot of people that's how our research relationship started right like yeah. we went to grad school together uh and so she would constantly listen to me talk about biomechanics stuff and wearable sensor stuff. And like, you know, at the beginning, she was like, I don't understand anything you're talking about. And either my explanations got better over time or her understanding And we started to sort of speak the same language a little bit. Um, and a lot of our projects now started as ideas uh, either that happen like sort of like over dinner in grad school, like the mm-hmm. this, this kid project, I think is like the best one to think about. We were like out at Thai food. We'd had a, like a bottle of wine. Like, oh, we could put sensors on kids. <laughs> like, maybe that would do it. Uh, but like, and then like, but it's like 10 years later now. And like, this yeah. is this awesome project that I think can really make a difference for a lot of kids. Um, Our kids in mental health sort of her area of expertise? Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, sorry. Yeah, sorry, sorry. She's, a, she's a child. She's a child clinical psychologist. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, super research focused, but uh, that's sort of her passion is how do you how do you better detect these disorders in kids and then ultimately how do you get them directed to treatment? Uh, mm. So so the other piece of this kid study is a, a K award in the NIH that she has that's supporting sort of the other half of the project. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's been super, it's been amazing. Like it's, it's really fun. Uh, I think we're like motivated by, um, we have two kids, three that are three and five. And so I think like, you know, our family life motivates a lot of the research questions that we sort of dive into. You put sensors on all your... <laughs> yeah, like, I was just looking, I was just looking today. There's a, there's a, I, my, my first tweet that I ever put out on my academic Twitter account is like this picture of our oldest in my mocap lab at UVM, like carrying around a Vicon box with a sensor stuck to it. <laughs> and did you put them through the rubber snake experience? <laughs> wow. Is something you're prototyping? I think from that relationship. So I think you know, not, not all of us have a partner and all, not all of us have a partner in like a field that you feel like could have a collaboration. But I feel like kind of what I'm hearing from that is like having these more casual conversations where you're able to speak the same language, which can then help spark new ideas and like really bringing in this outside perspective too, because I think even, you know, at work when we're around people who might not be working on the same project as us, but I think you kind of notice even through like lab meetings and things mm-hmm. as you're like with the kind of the same group for so long, you can almost sort of like predict the types yeah. of like questions that they're going to ask. And like, it's amazing in one sense, but then in, in another way, it's like, I think being with someone who has this totally unique perspective really does like start to make you see things in a, in a new way that you might not have otherwise. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's so important, I think, as scientists to like continually subject yourself to that right. outside perspective. Mm-hmm. Like I love going to conferences that aren't on my specific topic. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. Like I think because it's it's like it's really good to go to conferences that are very specific, right? So you yeah. like, meet the people in your field and you sort of understand what's happening and sort of share your your piece of that. But um, I think it's really also impactful to see like other techniques that are being used in other disciplines mm-hmm. and both for like potentially new project ideas, but also for, you know, to help sort of broaden your, the way that you think about your, your, your scientific problems that you're trying to solve. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. (laughs) I also wanted to ask um, about your role as an assistant director and you've been working on shaping a new biomedical engineering program at the university of Vermont in this position. And I'm curious to learn more about your vision for what a new department would look like, um, but then maybe some of the challenges that need are needed to overcome to get there. And if it's sort of generalizable across other engineering departments, you think, or what, yeah, what have you been learning in that role? I think from more of a institutional perspective. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. So I think it's, it's interesting starting a new department because it is, um, it gets much more into like the business of academia, right? Like it's not like you're not doing science. Like you're, you're sort of thinking about what can help set our university apart, mm-hmm. right? And like what, what are the, what are the competitive advantages that our university bring brings to um, sort of mm-hmm. this academic landscape and how can we capitalize on that? Yeah. Um, because ultimately like if you pick the right thing, then that's great for the students that you end up bringing in. It's great for the faculty that you end up bringing in. Mm-hmm. Um, it sort of ends up being this thing that that can really be um, something that your university gets behind. And so in the case of Biomedical Engineering at UVM, um, we're like one of the few places in the country that has a College of Medicine on the same campus as a College of Engineering, mm-hmm. on the same campus as a regional medical center, and they're all within like 100 yards of each other. That's so key. Yeah, it's like really key. It provides great access, great collaboration opportunity. Um, and it serves a state that has a remarkably rural population that are sort of ch- like challenged with healthcare problems that um, are true across the country, but it's in like a relatively small environment, right? Like you can drive to in, all throughout the city of Vermont in like a couple hours. It's not like Montana where it takes like a, you know, like a day to cross yeah. something, like that, <laughs> yeah. you know? Um, and so I think we're we're in a sort of pretty we're in a pretty unique position to we were in a pretty unique position to build a biomedical engineering program that that can sort of that's sort of differentiated yeah um, and then we pair that at UVM with like this focus on providing really good undergraduate education in addition to like doing good research mm-hmm. um, and so we have this really cool undergraduate curriculum that's like I think pretty unique in the country it's like very focused on. Um, providing students hands-on opportunity to do biomedical engineering, like starting in their first year and then continuing throughout. So we have this like um, integrated design sequence where students do some sort of engineering design every semester. And then they have these core, this core training in biomedical engineering that happens in these like, like large classes that pair, we call them studio style classes. So like pair short lectures with activities that happen immediately afterwards to help reinforce the concepts that students are learning. And then they're given freedom for the, basically for their second two years to um, pick electives that sort of help them define what their path in biomedical engineering is. They can pick them like largely from throughout campus um, because ultimately like 
BME is super broad, right? And right, so like, right. we try to help in the first couple of years, help students figure out what they want to do, but then right. also ultimately give them freedom to tune their degree to what their interests are. Right. So we have students that do like more of a data science related biomedical engineering mm-hmm. degree. We have students that do more of like a signal processing related degree. Folks that are more on like the regenerative medicine tissue engineering side. So yeah, I think it's it, it makes a really interesting training opportunity for students. I think it's setting up well for the future. So they build depth sort of in their latter two years then in one of those focus. Yeah, that's really great because I think one that one criticism of a lot of biomedical or bioengineering programs is that you get a ton of breadth, but like maybe not as much depth. Yeah. So that's incredible that they have the experience to do that and also do it. In, yeah, I love that we love the design like process and like that you're integrating that into sort of their cumulative education too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it, I mean, I think it's so key because ultimately, like as engineers, we're like we're building new stuff for people, right? right? Like, yeah. like that's kind of our jobs. And so it's like yeah. I think it's like pretty easy to sort of get distracted from that. But a lot of a lot of times, that's the reason that students got into it. And so I think it helps meet them where they are when they come to school, and then helps to continue that excitement as they as they go through their program. Program mm-hmm. graduate. Mm-hmm. Were there any major like challenges or pieces of feedback you got that had to reshape any parts of this? Like it sounds like a nice, beautiful package right now, but I'm sure there was a lot of work. <laughs> Going into like planning that and it's a very insightful question. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean it's it's like it's a startup, right? So um, like it really is a startup in academia, and you get some some internal funding to support it. You try to find external funding to support it, but it's a challenge, right? Like you're oftentimes you're you're operating with less resources than you'd want to be operating with, and um, (laughs) trying to piece together class coverage when you don't necessarily have it, and trying to find creative solutions for that. So yeah, I mean it's like a. I w- certainly wouldn't. I wouldn't change anything that we've done. I think it's been a really um, good process, and I think we're you know not all the way through yet. <laughs> <So> <laughs> yeah, like, if anybody's looking for a faculty job, we're always hiring. <laughs> 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 for like it's a wonderful place. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking about the hundred yards is helpful. Like the medical campus, the um, engineering campus being so close. Like with all the snow, you get. <laughs> That does help. If you can walk between the buildings. There's a great route through the hospital, at least pre-COVID times, where you're through the hospital where you can walk mostly inside from the parking lot, which is nice. Yep, that's important. Yeah, Yeah. it's good to know those those (laughs) towns. I think we can both, I mean, from Boston and Akron, and like we're always trying to find those sneaky, like indoor routes. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. (laughs) Well, we've really appreciated you sharing all of this insight from, you know, the, the research that you're doing to translating that to collaborations and as the assistant director now. I'm sure it's going to be really hard to, like, think of a time that you failed um, in, on any of those. Uh, but if you can think really uh, hard at if there ever was a certain situation maybe that stands out where... Um, you learn something that you might not have expected. Yeah. I mean, I think, like, I don't know. I think I fail all the time. Mm-hmm. You know? Like, it's it's sort of like a core piece of me. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, it's, I think it's all about how do you... I, like, I don't think of it as failures necessarily, though. I think of them as, like, yeah. learning opportunities and yeah. opportunities to pivot to something new. Yeah. Um, I think, like, Panic Mechanic is a great example of one. You know, I think we created this technology that provides biofeedback therapy, but people don't want to use biofeedback therapy when they're having a panic attack. Right? Mm-hmm. And I think like, you know, it's in one context that could be considered a failure, but I, like, I think ultimately we're just learning a lot about the potential customers of, of yeah. this tool. And we're, yeah. you know, using that to inform how we like, what else do we build to help them? Right. 
I think that's true of like every project, <laughs> right? Like, it's, yeah. like I think it's like every project we've ever done. Um, there's always some point where you're like, huh, okay, this is like really good feedback. Let's do something different now mm. to still address like the ultimate need. Right. But, um, you know, this initial approach is probably not the answer. It's a good, you had that ready. <laughs> it's like you listen to Boom Boom. Yeah. Oh my god, every episode. Oh my god. <laughs> um, well, Ryan, we're really excited to ask our last question, but before that, how can people follow you in your work? So we have Lab Twitter, um, which I can share with you all. Great. We'll put it mm-hmm. down for what it is offhand. It, it <laughs> might be at MSense Group, but uh, <laughs> I'll need to double check. Yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll add it to the description. <laughs> And that's probably the best way. way. Okay. Okay. Awesome. We'll go all the way back to your first tweet of your, uh, (laughs) of your loves like stalking back to the first, uh, tweet for space. Don't let her see your Facebook page because you like never know what she might uncover there. (laughs) Yeah. The problem is I also love to save the photos. So, Um, well, Ryan, we've talked about so many exciting things, but we'd love to get your insight on what you're excited about for the future of biomechanics. That's a great question. I think that the future of biomechanics is really about what's happening outside of the lab. Um, and so I think that's the piece that I'm most excited about. I think scientifically, I'm excited for all of the ways that we're going to learn to use new technologies to capture that remote biomechanics information accurately. And I'm like personally really interested in how do we apply that then for making people healthier. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I think there's so many applications where that can matter everything from mental health to mm-hmm. physical rehab to you name it. Um, and I, you know, I think it's just the beginning of, of the next 10 years. And I think it's going to be such a cool, such a cool impact. Yeah. In 10 years it'll be done. no we're really excited for that too and we're really excited for the work you're doing and how that's contributing to that vision um i think the work you do is really inspiring to so many people so we really including us (laughs) us, yeah especially us especially us (laughs) we really yeah appreciate all that you do and we're so thankful that you came on boom today and could share a little of that with us Oh, thank you. And I'm so happy to invite me. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you so much to Ryan. That was incredible. I'm always impressed with how eloquent our guests are and also how they can yeah speak about really complex topics but in really simple and understandable ways yeah they need it to be simple (laughs) (laughs) such a good human so and speaking of good humans thank you for listening (laughs) and thank you to the international society of biomechanics the stanford neuromuscular biomechanics laboratory and thank you to peter washington for the boom music if you'd like to submit a research fail, someone to interview, or get involved with Boom, email us at biomechanicsonourminds at gmail.com, or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn at biomechanicsoom. There's lots of great content there. And there's mm-hmm. lots of great content on our YouTube channel as well. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And finally... And there's, wait, there's, there's more. more. <laughs> you can visit our beautiful website at <laughs> biomechanicsonourminds.com naturally. It's, you know, you know if you, if you can't figure out where to find us, you can also probably just Google us. <laughs> Google us. <laughs> I'm Melissa. And I'm Hannah. 
Biomechanics, Biomechanics off our minds. minds.